Last week, when the clock told 11.30, we were studying the book of Titus by way of the doctrine of the woman. Again, when time expired, we were reviewing how women of the Bible certainly played a significant role in military and political life. For example, there were Deborah, Jael, and Bathsheba. Well, I want to review some of that learned last week and then begin new material at point 12 on page 4 in your lesson plan. Titus was ordered, this is by the way, Titus part 2 as you might recall, and of course uh, today is Mother's Day, but uh, here we go with the book of Titus. Alright, Titus was ordered by Paul to provide certain instructions to the women abiding in Crete. Uh, and I'm going to give you a related passage which has caused some uh, problem in churches. Uh, and that is what Paul had written concerning women in his letter to Timothy in 1st Timothy chapter 2. So by way of a, oh you might say a preface, so let me read that. 1st Timothy 2, 9 through 14. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now keep in mind, these studies will not necessarily agree with modernity's perspective, but rather it will be based based uh, on what the Bible has to say. So with that bit of a preface, let's use 1 John 1, 9, as may or may not be necessary, and then we will continue with our doctrine of the woman. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to study your word. Guide us now and direct us, for I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, doctrine of the woman. The woman of her own volition surrenders her freedom to her right man or some other man. This surrender includes both soul and body. And I want to highlight the following and also help us to better understand what Paul was t- talking about when he wrote 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 14. Well, to begin with, and I've highlighted it in the plan, no believer should ever marry an unbeliever. And I would suggest you see the doctrine of right man slash right woman for more information. And uh, you'll find that, of course, either on the uh, 
well, on the website under Pastor Merritt's study books, Right Man and Right Woman. All right, every woman should study everything in the Bible regarding category two love, that is love of the right man for the right woman, and the love of the right woman for the right man. Before saying yes to a man, the woman must ask herself the question, can I submit myself as a slave to this man? Remember, you should never challenge the authority of your right man, and you will not and cannot change your man. Many women, unfortunately, enter marriage with the belief they will be able to change Bozo into a prince. Now, the real question, can your fiancé love you as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it? This is his command found in the scripture as certainly the doctrine of right man and right woman uh, will make clear. So, ladies... What you see may be what you get. Women should ask themselves, can I make this man Lord of my life? To become one with a man, the woman surrenders freedom and much of her privacy. In response to her right man, the woman should receive love and happiness. The woman's submission is total. Total soul submission. So she must know all about not only her soul, but the soul of her right man's. A woman's soul is structured just like her right man's soul. Every right woman has self-consciousness, and when she becomes aware of the man she loves, she becomes infatuated with him, and he tries, of course, or should try to please her and she should try to please him. But a right man must always cater to this God-given enthusiasm that a woman has and should never squelch it. All right, a woman may soon find her enthusiasm, however, for her right man fading. It is then the mentality of her soul that her love must come. This is pivotal. Pivotal and will determine success or failure in a marriage. There should be before marriage mutual spiritual growth. And of course that's a product of mutual metabolization of Bible doctrine. A chart will illustrate. You can see I've showed you this chart yet last week in fact uh, where it shows the x-axis, of course, a timeline, and then the y-axis, a series of events. Both the man and the woman are to be believers, and as such, they will be taught by God the Holy Spirit, whoa, this is a sin, and then their job is to rebound or name it back to God. And, of course, that will bring them back into fellowship and permit them to continue to grow on what I call the Z-axis over there, where you have the word B or babes, 
and of course you can see the the numeral the letter excuse me Y. So they're operating daily or moment by moment, however, sinning and rebounding, sinning and rebounding, and thus able to uh, be teachable as they grow in its grace through the intake of the word, which uh, from our other charts, you'll remember, I show little cups and how the cups get bigger and bigger, both uh, on the man's side and on the woman's side. And those cups represent capacity, capacity for spiritual growth. And then they will one day be ready for each other because they have metabolized doctrine and both move to spiritual maturity independently. But once they become one, they will grow to spiritual maturity as the two. And we've had that chart and seen that chart before, but I thought it was an important chart, so I repeated it. All right, both the right man and the right woman use their volition to learn to love one another. She must use her emotions as a responder to the Bible doctrine resident in her soul. It is the job of the man to love her, to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He must lead her and expose her to what the Bible has to say about marriage and, of course, other things, all the while respecting her authority, that is, the man, on a daily basis, teaching her, but respecting her volition. So he must never bully her, and he must never react to her moods. A man is not a reactor or should not be. And the woman should be a responder. So she responds and he does not react. Alright, he must be then the initiator and never the responder, even when it is clear she does not appreciate either him or her situation. But it is then he should love her as Christ loved the church. Okay, you know, originally, the woman was created to be man's helpmeet, a helper, suitable for him, an associate to complete him. A man without his right woman is an incomplete man. Notice Genesis 2, 18 through 20. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helpable, a helper suitable for him. Alright, verses 19 and 20 go on to say, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man, that would be Adam, to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper helper was formed. Thus, the woman was created 
to complete man. She was to be an essential supporting element to complete him. The husband's leadership was made necessary by the fall, not the creation. And you'll recall the fall. The lady was deceived and the man chose. All right, women could take part in business such as real estate ventures and the manufacture and sale of linen garments and tents. I'm talking about now in the Old Testament. And of course, we can make application to uh, the New Testament and today. So we can say women can take part in business such as real estate ventures and the manufacture and sale of human garments, etc. So the perfect wife can be a mover and a shaker. And the perfect wife is described in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10, all the way through the chapter itself. Now, let me just read you, at least in part, 31.10, reading all the way through verse 24. I want you to get the gist of it. I want to motivate you to read the whole thing. And then take in mind, what can a woman do? Of course, as we will see, outside the local church. All right, here we go. Verse 10 says, A wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Now, verse 13, what does she do? She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. Verse 16, she sees a field and considers a field and buys it. She buys it out of her earnings. She plants a vineyard. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. She opens, and now we're going to verse 20. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. And verse 24. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants and with their sashes, or provides merchants with various things, but selected as sashes, in other words, clothing. So that'll give you an idea, it should whet your appetite to study an entire chapter, beginning in verse 10 to the end. So uh, a woman can do just about anything she wants to outside the local church. In other words, she is authorized to work and to produce. All right, now let's go to Acts 18, 2 and 3. Get an example. Paul met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, as Caesar, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as were they, he stayed and worked with them. All right, some women even played a significant role in military and political life. For example, there were Deborah and Bathsheba. Now we got through part of this, and I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing because it's such an interesting story and gives you an idea that even in our Old Testament, 
where women were restricted from doing a lot of things that related to uh, the scripture. Uh, some were pro- prophetesses. And this was what we find with Deborah, the wife of Lapidot. And he was a leader in the northern kingdom in Israel, not the southern kingdom. And let's go to Judges chapter 4, verse 5, and we'll read through verse 9. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about the story than I did perhaps last week. So she used to sit under a big tree between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and people would come to her, and and uh, they would have disputes, and she would settle them, and she would also from time to time tell what God had told her to tell them. So she sent for Barak. This is one day, apparently she had had a vision from God, and God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go talk to the son of Benaham, from Kedish in Naphtali, the sixth son of Jacob. And here's what I want you to say to him. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun. Another son, uh, I think she was, he was the ninth son. Then uh, I know Naphtali was the sixth. And you know how I memorize stuff with baseball analogies and Zebulun was, he was a pitcher. And, uh, he sat in the bullpen until they need him and then he was whiz-banged to come in and shut him down. The, 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 uh, the, of course, opposition. He told him to lead the way to Mount Tabor. And, uh, then what did he tell in verse 7? She's going to do something for him. Now, she's actually sent him to war. Uh, and he's very reluctant. But she says, I'll tell you what I do. I'm going, to, I'm going to lure Sisera. He was the commander of a particular army in the field. It was called Yabin's army. And he had a lot of chariots and he had a lot of troops. And he was down by the Kishon River. And she said, I'm going to give him into your hands. Meaning, you're going to be victorious. And I'm sure he was shaking in his boots at that time because he didn't have any chariots because Israel didn't and wasn't permitted to have chariots. Neither horses are chariots. And so he considered her command from God and he was still a little reluctant. His knees were still knocking. So Barak said to her, Now I'll do this if you go with me. But he said, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. So very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. And there's more to the story, and you can read about it, but just keep in mind, Visualize the tree, visualize Deborah holding court, visualize Deborah getting into some chariot and, uh, a harsh driven cart of some sort, but anyway, she went with the army. So you talk about 10,000 men and they moved against this particular 
tribe or combination of tribes. And uh, they went as far as Hagoyim. And that's where they set their battle lines. And they had a whiz-bang battle. And guess what? Who was victorious? Just like the Lord said, Israel was victorious. And the leader of their army was a guy by the name of Sisera, as she had already mentioned. And he took off running. He did not want to be captured and and uh, probably beheaded or whatever they did at that particular point in time. Uh, and it depends, of course, on what the Lord would tell them to do. But nonetheless, he set forth running. I would like to have seen that. Him running on foot where he ran and ran and ran and he got exhausted. And he came to uh, the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Because they were friendly. In other words, his tribe and their tribe, Kenites, were friendly. So he goes in to meet. And uh, whoever's there. And uh, Jael, of course, saw him coming. And she went out. She said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she put a covering over him. And he said, Oh, I'm so thirsty and tired. Please let me have some water. So she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Now he told her, Stand in the doorway of the tent. If anybody comes, ask you, is there anyone here? Say, no, no, nobody's here. But Jael, she had better, she had other ideas. Verse 21. She pipped, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and walked quietly over to him. He was sound asleep. And she drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Now, as a result of the story that's even told today, as you might imagine, because it's being told right here in this church. Who is the hero? Certainly not the leader of the army of Israel. Because he would not rely upon what God told, again, his prophet Deborah to do. So people will say, there's the man who led the army but was afraid and had to have a woman kill the king of his enemy. All right. So we've kind of reviewed what we had last week. Now let's look at another lady. Bathsheba. Now this is a story of great intrigue. We're going to find out who's going to be king and what role Bathsheba is going to play in this matter. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggit, has become king without our Lord David's knowing it? Now, uh, you have to keep in mind that Adonijah was the rightful heir to be king. But because Bathsheba, I think, had convinced David 
that Solomon should be king, and God had convinced Bathsheba to convince David that Solomon needed to be king. Though he wasn't uh, by rights of primogenitor to be king. So Adonijah, not knowing that, he wanted to celebrate because David was about to die. You remember he had a virgin in bed with him to keep him warm and he was on the verge of dying. Now let's go on with verse 12. Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Because if Adonijah is made king, then Adonijah is probably going to have Bathsheba killed as his enemy and also her son Solomon because uh, people know that Bathsheba thinks Solomon should be king. So let's see what he tells her to do. Okay? Go into King David and say to him, My lord the king, did you not swear to me, your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me and will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you were still there talking to the king, I will come in and confirm what you have said. So Bathsheba went in to see the aged king in his room where Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending him. Bathsheba, however, bowed low and knelt before the king. What is it you want? The king asked. She said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant, by the Lord your God. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep, and has invited all the king's son. Now Beathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, has it, but he has not invited Solomon your king. So he's got the high priest Abiathar, who was one of two high priests at that time, and also uh, the head of the army, who was Joab. And I've told you that about the doctrine of Joab and the doctrine of Abiathar and the two priests before, how that could happen. So, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord, because now we've got two kings out there. At least one is, of course, Solomon, and the other is Adonijah. And uh, what is David going to do is what's in the minds of all the people. So they have a lot of intrigue. So while he was still speaking, here comes the other prophet, Nathan. That was David's personal prophet. And uh, they told the king, Nathan the prophet is here. So he went before the king and bowed with his face to the ground. Nathan said, Have you, my lord, the king declared that Adonijah shall be king after you? And remember, this is all set up. In other words, the day he has gone down and sacrificed great numbers of cattle. There was a big celebration. In fact, he's invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar, the other priests. And they're all shouting and toasting to Adonijah. Now verse 26. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he did not invite because he knew these guys were loyal to David. 
and of course, therefore, being loyal to Solomon. And uh, the question is asked, is this something my lord the king has done without letting his servants know who should sit on the throne of my lord? And the king said, that is, David said, call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. Now verse 29, the king then took an oath as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble. I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then Bathsheba bowed and said, My Lord, King David, live forever. And David said, Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. And they came before the king, and he said, Take your Lord's servant with you, and set Solomon, my son, on my own mule, and take him down to the Gihon. And there have Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet anoint him. And then you go with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my palace. And then it'll be a done deal. Now Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, answered the king. He was David's bodyguard. He'll be very instrumental in disciplining a lot of people after Solomon becomes king. He says, Amen. Must have been a Southern Baptist. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, so declare it. As the Lord is with my Lord, the king, so he be with Solomon to make his throne even greater than the throne of my Lord, the king. So they, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, who is by the way a commander of the Carathites and the Pelathites. You remember those were the personal bodyguards of David and will continue to be the bodyguards of Solomon. They put Solomon on the throne. So Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred men and he anointed Solomon. And long live King Solomon shouted the people. So everybody walked through the streets playing flutes and rejoicing, and there poor Adonijah was wondering what in the world happened. So only the men in Israel uh, were required to do certain things. Let's just look at point 13 where we see one of those things. Uh, there was an ordinance uh, which seems to have been more of a human concession out of, you know, humanity because of the inconveniences of childbirth and the woman's responsibility for the children, though she possessed, possessed fully all the rights of participation when she could attend, that is to say, meaning the various festivals and feast days, etc., going to the, the uh, temple and going to, if you're in the northern kingdom, to Shiloh, to a place of worship. All the women could go. But there were certain concessions that were provided because of the fact that she was often having children and and could not go. Again, for humanitarian reasons, and she did not go. So for that reason, I'm going to read to 1 Samuel one twenty two. It says, Hannah did not go. In other words, she didn't go, as the other lady said. So she said to her husband... After the boy, that would be Samuel, uh, is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Which again he did, and he learned, and he became one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. 
and their restriction, if you will, to a separate court of the women as in Heron's temple was an intertestament and non-biblical innovation that developed out of Judaism, corrupted by contact with the Greek world. And I provided you a particular map of the Herod's temple. You can see how you have the court of the women there. And I'll give you a point or two about how that all came about. But in ancient Greek society, women were considered inferior to men, uh, intermediate between free men and slaves. In fact, wives led separate lives of seclusion and practical slavery. And then along came the gospel as presented by the Lord Jesus Christ and we have a revolution. Let me read you about that. Luke 1, 2, 28 and then verse 30. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. Talking to Mary, Gabriel speaking. Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. In verse 46, reading through verse 49, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now Jesus then started a revolution. Freedom. In, a, in many respects to the word. For example, Jesus taught women and received their act of kindness and financial support. John eleven twenty through verse 23. When Martha heard that's a sister of Lazarus, that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary, the other sister, stayed at home. And so the Lord said, if you will, the Lord said, Martha, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, Martha speaking to Jesus. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. What a day that must have been when they went to the tomb and the Lord said, Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. Wow. Always like to think about what some have said about that situation. You, that is to say, you wonder what was he doing in heaven and what was his reaction. One songwriter said, well, he was dancing with David. And another songwriter said, uh, he was listening to his grandpa, Abraham, speak. And the Lord Jesus said, come forth. And he did. And, uh, boy, many people believe because of that, says the scripture. All right, let's go on to Luke 8, 3. Still talking about the revolution that the Lord made possible for women. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So women had money. 
And uh, they used their money to help the Lord Jesus in His work. All right, now let's look at Luke 10, 38, 39 through 40. And as Jesus and His disciples were on their way, He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to Him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what He said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has let me do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Oh, oh, got a couple of sisters. Soon there's going to be a cat fight. And uh, one of them asked the Lord, Don't you see what she's doing? She's not helping me at all. Well, things happen. All right, now let's go to Luke twenty-three fifty-five. The the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So you see, uh, the Lord appeared to the women like He did the men. And in fact, uh, the women usurped much of what the men should have been doing. But they went to the tomb to anoint Him. And the men didn't. I don't know what they did. But the women were loyal. Alright, let's go on. Women are to be considered as spiritual equals in Christ. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Alright, after Jesus' resurrection, the women united with the other disciples in prayer and full fellowship. Alright, Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So the ladies all showed up there in Galilee just as Jesus had said at the, at Bethany where he had uh, risen in the air and told them, go to Galilee and I'll see you all there. Certainly the women went just as did the men and uh, maybe not, not totally, but uh, large numbers. And there they received the power and gifts of the Holy Spirit along with the men on the day of Pentecost. A revolution is going on, men. All right, Acts 2, 17 and 18. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Now, some women like Lydia, Priscilla, and Phoebe were outstanding as fellow workers with Paul and as women in whose home churches met. And, of course, you can also remember Mark's mom was very instrumental and had church in her house. Let's look at Romans chapter 16, reading through verse 5. It says, I commend you, or excuse me, I commend to you your sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sincrea. 
I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. And then he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles were grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convent to Christ in Asia. So Christian women were permitted to pray and prophesy in the church meetings, although the New Testament does not allow them to occupy positions of leadership in local assemblies. The prohibition against being placed in authority over a man is quite clear. The silence demanded must be analyzed in the light of a categorical study. So let's take a look at the role of the woman in the local church. Whoops, I see it's time to shut her down. So next week we will begin with the role of the woman in the local church. So now I would like for your heads to be bowed and your eyes closed as you think about our need to make clear the gospel. So I ask that you would uh, pray that the Word of God would have full effect because we're all sinners and in need of salvation. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind we serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, said Paul. And the jailer cried out, What must I do to be saved? And the answer was given. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. In the scripture, it's all by grace. All that God is free to do for you and for me on the basis of the cross. Without in any way compromising the integrity of God. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. So what must you do to be saved? You don't jump through any psychological hoops. You don't walk an aisle. You don't raise your hand. You don't tell God, I'm not going to do that anymore. No. It's faith alone in Christ alone. So you can just tell God right now, right where you are, I am believing on God the Son. And on the promise of the word, you will be saved. Going to pause. I'm going to pause for just a moment and give opportunity for you to do just that. And then I'll close with our benediction. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and worship. Now, I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented Make it real in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become and become more like our Lord and Savior. For it is in his name I pray. Amen.